Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. All right, well, if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and grab them. Go with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, to that passage we just read. Uh, I hope you guys all had a great Thanksgiving this week, complete with turkey and stuffing and absolutely no cranberry sauce, because what even is that stuff, right? Like, who even knows? Hope you got a drool nap. That is my personal favorite part of Thanksgiving, is a good solid drool nap after the meal. Um, For those of you that kind of stayed put and had a very chill, non-eventful Thanksgiving due to COVID concerns, I hope that was at least restful for you this year. Uh, For those of you who used COVID as a reason to do what you already wanted to do, and avoid your family for Thanksgiving, well played. Very dirty, but well played. I know there were a lot of people that were taking that approach this year. But all in all, I hope Thanksgiving was good on some level for all of us in some way, shape, or form. Uh, Today, we are going to kick off a a quick three-week series leading up to Christmas called Give Like God. And at the end of the day, this is a series about how we as followers of Jesus are invited into viewing our money and our possessions and how we approach our money and our possessions. Uh, One reason for this series and one reason we wanted to do this series is because in America, we have noticed that we have a bit of a cultural problem when it comes to money and possessions. And that problem tends to rear its ugly head specifically this time of year on a regular basis. And the problem is this. Here's how I would articulate the problem in America. An awful lot of us in our society are very quick to spend large amounts of money we don't have on things we don't need. Money we don't have on things that we don't need. That's how I would articulate the problem. It's kind of hard to argue this problem from a numbers perspective. So I'll give you just some examples, some statistics here. The average American household carries $16,000 in credit card debt. Among millennials, so that's people who are now in their 20s and 30s largely, 41% of their income, so that's almost half, goes towards discretionary costs. So things like dining out and nightlife and personal passions and hobbies. Almost half of their income goes towards things like that, that they don't particularly need. And Americans on the whole, nationwide, spend $1.2 trillion a year on non-essential items. In other words, things we don't need. To add to that, let's talk for a moment about the phenomenon that is storage facilities, the space that we pay for to keep all of the stuff that we don't need. In the U.S., storage facilities are a $29.5 billion industry. Billion. 
There are over 60,000 storage facilities nationwide. Just to put that in perspective, I know sometimes it's hard to figure out what exactly that means. That means there are more storage facilities in the U.S. than there are Starbucks, McDonald's, Dunkin' Donuts, Pizza Huts, and Wendy's locations combined. That's not 60,000 storage units that's 60,000 storage facilities, as in the monstrosity of the buildings that they keep building along I-40 as you drive through Knoxville. That's how many of them that we have. In these ways and so many more, by and large, we have a tendency as a society to spend money we don't have on things we don't need. Now, in response to that, you may be thinking, okay, agreed, this stuff is normally a problem in America, I really see it as an issue. But right now, we're in the middle of a pandemic and a recession, right? Like, surely that has shaken us out of this rampant focus on consumerism and materialism 24-7. I mean, surely with so many people losing jobs and losing income and not being able to go out as regularly, surely all of those things have cut down on how much unnecessary spending we do as a society, it sure seems like that would be the case, right? However, that is not really the case. Of course, on some level, consumer behavior has changed in response to COVID, but COVID did not magically make us as a society less materialistic. The things we spent money on just changed a little bit. They just shifted. So spending on things like travel and experiences and dining out, those things may have dropped, but spending on things like in-home entertainment and online shopping and home improvement went through the roof. As an example, Home Depot just announced that they are increasing their payroll by $1 billion right now because of the dramatic increase in demand for home improvement items. We all got locked in our houses for a few months and we just magically morphed into little versions of Chip and Joanna Gaines, right? I mean, I don't know if you guys noticed this. I went to Lowe's a couple times when everything first shut down in like March and I could not get in the door. I mean, there were so many people there. That was the one place that a pandemic was not happening was at Lowe's and Home Depot. There was also an article back in September from Bloomberg with the headline, Total Holiday Spending Seen Rising This Year Despite COVID-19. Another publication called this phenomenon revenge spending. This was a term coined back in the 1980s to describe the sudden surge in shopping and a demand for consumer goods after a long period of economic difficulty. This is a phenomenon that happens a lot, apparently. And I would bet that as we head into the holidays this year, they will, there will be a lot of revenge spending happening in America. Some of you have maybe even gotten started just a couple days ago during Black Friday, whether it was in person or online. A lot of people who are sad and bored due to the pandemic will turn to anything, including shopping, to make life feel normal or exciting again. Or, as a good buddy of mine put it on Twitter, I am going to Christmas so hard this year. <laughs> so long story short, materialism is not just going to go away. A lack of income is not going to just starve out consumerism in our lives because it wasn't actually ever about how much money we had in the first place. It was always about the desire for more. 
It was always about the gravitation towards more things and better things and new things as a balm for our soul. And that tendency in human beings to to buy new things as a way of making us feel okay with ourselves and life in general, that tendency is alive and well even in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. So in this series, what I want to do is try to tackle every bit of that head on. Why is it that so many of us gravitate towards money and greed and materialism on a regular basis? And maybe more helpfully, is there a better way forward in regards to how we approach our money and our possessions as followers of Jesus? Through this series, for the next three weeks, I want us to allow the scriptures to speak into these facets of our lives directly. If we claim to follow Jesus, how should we think about and use our money differently? That's the question that we're trying to answer. You know, Jesus actually has a surprising amount to say about money and possessions. He talks about money and possessions more than any other topic in the Gospels as a whole, except for the kingdom of God. And that's just because the kingdom of God is kind of all-encompassing, right? He talks about that a lot. To Jesus, how we think about our money and our possessions was apparently a very important pressing issue, and it matters tremendously in terms of our discipleship to Jesus overall. And I think a lot of it comes down to this verse that we read about in Matthew chapter 6. If you guys were here for our Matthew series, Eric actually covered this passage about a month ago, where Jesus says, quote, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, Jesus says, if, if we want to see what we care about most as human beings, a good place to start is to look at where our money goes. Where does most of our money go? That's going to be a pretty good indicator of the things that our heart cares most about. So all things considered, I think this series, even if it is a little bit invasive to the way we think about life, I think it will be a very practically helpful series in regards to our discipleship to Jesus. So today, we are going to cover a passage from Luke chapter 12 about a guy who had a very similar tendency to a lot of us when it came to his money and his possessions. So take a look with me there. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, him being Jesus in this scenario, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So contextually, just for a second, here's what was going on here. In most Jewish families at the time, a father's inheritance was actually divided unevenly among his surviving sons. So usually the oldest son got a double share of the inheritance and all the other sons got a single share. So most likely, this guy who comes up to Jesus is one of the younger sons. He got a single share, and he wants Jesus to go and talk to his oldest brother who got the double share of the inheritance and get him to divide some of that inheritance with him so that he will have more money. Now, that wasn't necessarily an unusual request for someone to make of a first century rabbi, even if it does seem that way to us. First century rabbis, like Jesus identified as, 
would often get involved in arbitrating these sort of financial disputes among families. So this guy very likely sees Jesus as someone who will do exactly this for him. He'll settle this dispute between him and his brother. He'll get him a bigger share of the inheritance as a result. That's what he expects Jesus to do. Jesus actually responds in a very different way. Take a look with me back in verse 14. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? In other words, Jesus says, that actually is not what I'm here to do. That's not my mission on planet Earth. I have not come to settle financial disputes between you and your family. Jesus immediately offers a word of advice to the man instead. Look at verse 15 with me. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Be on your guard against covetousness, Jesus says. Now, that word covetousness probably feels a little bit foreign to you and I today. It can be translated covetousness or maybe greed or maybe in our society today a word like materialism. That's the idea he's trying to get across. Most literally translated, it means the never satisfied desire for more. That's what Jesus is talking about being on guard against. Jesus wants his people, his followers, to be on guard against the never-satisfied desire for more money and more stuff. That, in Jesus' mind, is a very clear and present danger to our discipleship. Now, here's what I find interesting about that response from Jesus. He doesn't make clear in his response whether this warning about being on guard against materialism, he doesn't make it clear as to whether this is a warning intended for the older brother with the double share of the inheritance or whether it's a warning for the younger brother who has less of the inheritance. He he doesn't pinpoint who this correction is intended for. So which is it? Is the older brother guilty of covetousness because he has more money? Or is the younger brother guilty of it because he wants more money? Yes. It's both. I think the implication is that they might both be driven by greed and covetousness and materialism. And I think this brings up an absolutely crucial point to be made about greed. And that's that greed is not a rich person issue or a poor person issue. It's a human issue. It's a human issue. It's an everybody issue. So when you and I think about someone who is greedy, when we think about the types of people who struggle with greed, I think we tend to imagine like the Wall Street executive, right? The CEO, the the lawyers, the doctors, the social elites of our society. We tend to think things like, oh, well, Jeff Bezos, the, the CEO of Amazon, he's greedy. I'm not greedy because I don't have enough money to be greedy. We just always assume that the person who struggles with greed is the person with a little more than we have, right? But think about that for a second. Doesn't that necessarily mean that somebody right now thinks you are greedy? because you have more than they have. So I think rather than sort of relegate this issue of greed, the struggle with greed to people that have a lot of money, whatever that definition is in our head, I think maybe we should take Jesus's advice and be on guard against it no matter how much or how little we have. Because he seems to think it's an issue for us all to be aware of. So 
when it comes to greed, here's what we have to remember. We have to remember that it is a human issue. Every single one of us, no matter how little we think we struggle with it, need to be on guard against it. And then Jesus gives us the reason to be on guard against it, the motivation for it. He says the reason we should all be on guard against covetousness is simply because, quote, our life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Jesus, referring to money and possessions, says this right here is precisely not what life is all about. And it's easy for us to miss, but that right there might be one of the most countercultural things that the Bible has to say to us as 21st century Americans, that life is not about how much stuff we have. Now, here's the problem. You and I probably hear that statement, life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions, and we think to ourselves, well, yeah, of course life is not about how much stuff you have. Like, who would believe something silly like that? I, I think we all heartily agree with Jesus from a philosophical, conceptual perspective. But when we get a little more specific with it, a little more pointed with what Jesus says, I think it becomes quite revealing for most all of us. Let me try and show you what I mean. Thought experiment I want us to all participate in real quick. I want you to imagine for just a second making the same amount of money that you make right now for the rest of your life. Your next performance review, you go in to talk to your boss and they say, hey, we just really appreciate all the hard work you're doing. You've really excelled. You've really done a great job at everything we've given you. And to reward you, we would like to continue paying you this same amount for the rest of your life. Imagine making the same thing you make right now for the rest of your life. For those of you in college, imagine that the first job you get out of college, that's the salary you make for the rest of your life. Never changes, never increases. I'll give you another one. I want you to imagine never living in a bigger or nicer house or apartment than the one you live in right now. Never. For the rest of your life, you live in exactly the same place. You never upgrade. You never buy a bigger house. You never move into a nicer apartment in a better location. Just the same space you live in right now for the rest of your life. I'll give you one more that may be a little more relevant for some of us in the room. I want you to imagine that you have the same model iPhone right now for the rest of your life. You never upgrade. It's just diminishing battery life and increasing uncoolness for the rest of your life. Now, let me be very clear on this. It's not wrong or sinful to take a raise. It's not wrong or sinful to move into a bigger or nicer house or apartment. It's not wrong or sinful to get the next iPhone that comes out. But I want you to pay very careful attention to the discomfort you felt in your soul when you imagined those things. Did you feel the sad rise up in you when you imagined those scenarios? Did, did, you, did you feel how disappointed you got in advance? That right there, that feeling, that level of sadness and disappointment, I would argue is a pretty good indicator of the degree to which you believe that life consists in the abundance of your possessions. I think that's revealing for us when it comes to these things. 
If we didn't believe at least a little bit that life consisted in newer and nicer and better stuff, those things, those thought experiments would not make us uncomfortable at all. They wouldn't make us disappointed at all. So that's it. That's what Jesus is talking about here. So we might not have a problem with it at a philosophical level, but I think an awful lot of us at least are uncomfortable with it at a practical, specific level. Jesus goes on, verse 16 of our passage. Take a look with me. And he told them a parable, saying, Jesus is about to launch into a parable, in other words, which if you're new to the Bible, if you're new to following Jesus, it's a story that sort of illustrates the point that he has just made about money and possessions. Here's the parable. Take a look, second half of verse 16. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops. So it's important to note that in Jesus' day and age, land and crops equaled money, equaled income. So if you had land and that land produced crops, that meant you were in good shape financially. So when it says in the passage that this guy's land produced plentifully, you could read that as he had a good year financially. His stock portfolio took off. He got a killer Christmas bonus. He got an amazing unexpected tax refund. You name it. In one way or another, he made out way better than he expected on this particular year. And so the question he asked in response to all that is, what should I do with all this extra that I have? I've got way more than I need, so what should I do with all of it? That's the question he asked. Take a look at his solution, verse 18. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all of my grain and my goods. So this guy does with his extra stuff what any good American would do with their extra stuff. He puts it in a storage unit, right? In fact, he builds a storage unit to keep it in. Surely, he thinks to himself, God would not want me to have less stuff than I have. He would want me to have more. And so the only way that I can solve that problem is to build bigger barns to store all of my extra stuff up for myself. So that's what he does. And then as a result, verse 19, and I will say to my soul, soul, good name for your soul, if you're wondering, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So he's set now, right? He doesn't have to worry about where next year's paycheck is going to come from. He's squared, in, he's squared away. No need to worry about anything at all. Now, right here, we've also got to talk for a second because here in America, we have almost turned this guy's mindset into the default mode of operation for us. I mean, so many of us view money so similarly to this guy in the story. Take him out of the pages of the Bible, and, and is he not just an embodiment of the American dream? I mean, isn't this what most all of us want to be able to do one day, is have a few good years, put some money away, retire early, and then do whatever we want with the rest of our life? At his core, he just wants to become financially independent, this guy in the story looks an awful lot like a lot of us. And yet at the same time, here's what God says about him. Verse 20. Fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? 
so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So here's the issue God takes up with this man in the story. He says, if tonight your life ends, who will your stuff belong to? All the extra that you stored up, all the things in the bigger barns that you built, whose will that stuff be? They certainly won't be this guy's stuff, right? Listen, if there's one thing I have thought about a lot in the midst of this whole coronavirus ordeal, it's the fragility of life. It's that no matter how young or healthy or fit or careful you are, you could still catch an invisible virus and it could go really bad for you. The simple fact is this, none of us know when death is coming for us. Merry Christmas. But right? I mean, none of us know when death is coming for us. And really, that's always been true. It's just that a lot of us are way more dialed into it right now. None of us know the day that we'll die. And for all of our advances in modern technology, everything that we've invented, all the cool things that we've done, still nobody gets to take anything with them to the grave. Every bit of everything that you own will eventually be in a landfill or will belong to somebody else. Every single thing. So here's what Jesus is trying to communicate in light of all of that. He's saying everybody gives away their money and their possessions at some point. Everybody does. Every single person will eventually give all of their stuff away. It's just a matter of how and when. You can be generous now voluntarily. You can joyfully offer up the things that you have and the money that you make to other people and be generous with it now. Or you can wait until you die and then be forced to be generous with all of your stuff. One way or another, all of your stuff will eventually belong to someone else. The only thing you get to determine is whether you're going to get to participate in the joy of giving it away or not. That's the only choice we get. And I realize to many of us that sounds like a crude way of putting it, but Jesus is saying this is just how the world works. This is the reality of the world that we live in. And then, with that point made, Jesus just ends his story. No resolution, no change in heart, no pretty bow at the end of the story, just a haunting story about a guy who passes away and has to leave all his stuff to other people and a question, which one is it going to be for you? I don't think many people would have liked Jesus' style of storytelling today. I don't think Disney would have bought any of the rights to the stories he told. They just don't end the right way from our perspective, right? Right? But Jesus wants, to, he wants us to wrestle with this. He wants us to consider, okay, in the story, do you resemble this guy or are you living your life differently when it comes to your money and your possessions? He leaves us with this story as a way of illustrating that life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. As a way of showing us that money and possessions are precisely not what life is all about. But at the end of the day, here's why I think we believe that life is about how much stuff that we have. Deep down, I think we are discontent with what we have because we're discontent with who we are. 
And there's part of us that really believes at a functional level that buying or having more stuff will fix, even if just for a moment, what we currently don't like about ourselves. Or bare minimum, it will give us something like a fresh coat of paint to walk around with, right? This is why we don't just buy clothes that fit us and keep us warm. We buy certain brands of clothing that make people see us a certain way as a result of wearing them. This is why we don't just all drive around basic beige-colored vehicles that have enough space and have wheels on them and an engine, right? We drive Lexuses and Mercedes and Teslas. Maybe not like us in the room, but other people do, right? Like other people in the world drive cars like that. Marketing companies have realized that we don't just buy things out of necessity anymore. We buy to obtain a status. In fact, there's, there's entire studies that have been done, books that have been written around, there was a turn in the world of marketing, I think it was like 50, 60 years ago, where, where marketers started to realize that they weren't just going to be able to sell us stuff that we needed, so what they had to do was not just manufacture products, they had to manufacture a perceived need. They had to tell us that we won't be whole or complete as a human being unless we buy their product. So we no longer buy things just because we need them. We, we buy things to obtain a status or a feeling or an experience that we want. The term retail therapy is an expression in our world for a reason. I think many of us believe deep down that part of us needs to be made new and that newer and nicer and better possessions will accomplish that in us. And here's the thing. We're partially right we are right in discerning that we need to be made new as human beings. We've correctly identified a problem, but we are wrong in thinking that money and possessions will accomplish that. Only Jesus makes us new. Only he can change us. Money and possessions, at best, are a cheap, temporary substitute. I think that's part of what Jesus wants us to take away from this story. And the way he wants us to respond practically to this story is this, that we should take care and be on our guard against all covetousness, greed, and materialism. That in the words of the parable, we wouldn't store up treasure for ourselves, but instead we would be rich towards God. So let's talk for a bit before we're done. What does it look like, practically speaking, to be on our guard against materialism? Because life is not about how much stuff we have. I've got two methods for you, two ways of repenting, two things that I think all of us can put into practice immediately this week to guard against materialism and covetousness. Method number one is this, making and keeping a budget. Making and keeping a budget. When Jesus uses the language to be on our guard against greed, the language that he uses is vivid. It means literally to keep an eye on something. So if you've read like the Christmas stories where it talks about shepherds keeping watch on their flocks by night, that's the same word Jesus uses here. It's the same idea. His word, take care, be on your guard, it means to keep an eye on something, to keep a close watch on it. 
So the implication here, I think, is that if you are not regularly keeping an eye on where your money goes, a lot of it is probably going towards materialism. And one of the most practical ways to keep an eye on your money is via a current, detailed, accurate budget. Each of those words I just said is important. Current, detailed, accurate budget. So practically speaking, if you don't have a budget that you operate from on a regular basis, I would strongly suggest that you make one. Having some sort of system for telling your money where to go and where not to go is the first line of defense against materialism in your life. If you don't know where to start with making a budget, we're going to offer you two very helpful things this week. The first is a budgeting class that's going to take place next Sunday from uh, 1230, I think, to 2 or something like that. Um, we'll have it right here at the building. If you need help budgeting, go ahead, sign up for that. You can find the details on our website. If you just don't know where to start with any of this, feel free to sign up for that. So that's next Sunday. The other thing is that we're actually going to offer a budget spreadsheet, a ready-made budget spreadsheet. It already works. All the formulas are in there. If you don't know how to use Excel, it'll be super easy for you. A ready-made budget template, we'll actually post it to our website on the same page that this sermon will be posted on our website later today. So if you just go online, you can download that. You can start to use it. I think it'll work on Google Sheets, Excel, Numbers, all of those different applications. So two practical things that we'll give you to start using a budget this week. We want to help any way we can. We see this as an essential part of our discipleship to Jesus, is how we think about our money. And so we want to do everything we can to equip you. But one way or another, whether you need help from that stuff or whether you've already got uh, access to those sorts of things and already know how to do it, if you don't currently have a budget, make one. Now, if you want to be even more vigilant in your resistance to materialism and covetousness in your life, here's what I would suggest. Once you make your budget, go over it with someone in your life group. Go over it with another follower of Jesus that knows you, knows how to keep a budget, knows how to maintain one, and get them to speak into it. Have them comb through it and point out any places where you might be over-allocating or under-allocating money for certain things. In fact, I would suggest regularly inviting other followers of Jesus into how you think about and spend your money. I know that feels super invasive to a lot of us. In America, we are just discipled to not talk to anybody about our money. We joke as pastors a lot that people sometimes are more willing to discuss their sex lives than they are to discuss their budget. Like that's where we're at as a society. But I know it feels weird to us, but it's actually really important that you get wisdom from other followers of Jesus into how you think about and how you budget your money. So put it before other people in your life group, other people that know you, other people that keep a budget and say, hey, what do you think? Is there anything that needs to be adjusted? Is there anything that needs to change in this? I've actually found that there are usually only two reasons that people don't like to talk to other people about their spending and their budget. Usually one of two reasons. Either, one, because they pridefully think they don't need any help, or two, because they are embarrassed for others to see how they currently spend their money. And listen, for followers of Jesus in the room, neither of those are good reasons. 
The gospel tells us that we need wisdom from God and from other followers of Jesus in all aspects of our life, in every aspect of our life, especially in our money. And the gospel tells us that whatever shame we have around anything, including our money, has already been dealt with at the cross. So that means that we can ask for help and we can seek out help without fear of being laughed at or mocked or looked down upon. So listen, we should invite others into how we think about our money and our budget and our finances. It's one of the most practical ways to grow in this aspect of your discipleship to Jesus. But the point is, one way or another, formulate a plan to use budgeting and community to help keep an eye on, to help be on your guard against materialism and greed. Number two, method number two is this, giving away 10% of your income as a starting point. I would encourage anyone who is a follower of Jesus to give away 10% of their income minimum. The biblical word for that is tithing. Tithe literally means a tenth. So here's what is abundantly clear to me from the scriptures. You will not find very many patterns of God's people giving away less than a tenth of their income. In the Old Testament, God's people, depending on how you do the math, really gave more like 30 to 40% of their income away on a regular basis. And in the New Testament, we have stories of people being generous to the point of selling their homes and property so that they can give more generously. So when you take an honest survey of the Bible, Old Testament and New, 10% is honestly on the far low end of the spectrum when it comes to what God's people give away out of their income. So I feel totally comfortable saying that if you are a follower of Jesus and you're not giving away at least 10% of your income, something probably needs to change. Now, I am well aware of the irony of me saying that in the midst of a global pandemic and recession, okay? I'm aware of that. So if you're here and you or your family is just in a really tough season from a financial standpoint, if somebody lost a job or your budget just took a huge hit in one way or another or something like that, please feel free to press pause on this conversation while you get on your feet financially. That is totally understandable. That's totally okay. And I'll add to that, if that's you and you or your family are currently in financial need and you're a part of our church family, please make sure that your life group knows about it. Make sure that our church family knows about it because in any way we can, we want to help you. We want you to be on the receiving end of generosity from our church family. So there may be seasons of life where 10% just isn't feasible for you or your family and I want you to hear me say that's okay. And maybe for others of us, maybe it's not a particularly tough season financially. It, it's just that we've spent a lot of our life not being financially generous, and it's going to take some work to break those habits and change direction in that regard. And that's okay, too, so long as you're making strides towards it. A guy in my life group who's actually gonna help us teach the budgeting class, he, he says this a lot with people. He says, uh, if you can't give away 10% of your income right now, it's worth figuring out what a path to 10% might look like. So, so maybe that's right now, all you can do is give away half a percent or 1% of your income. 
But maybe you do that for a couple months and then you work your way up to 2% and then to 3% and so on and so forth. Even if you can't give away 10% of your income right now as a follower of Jesus who wants to be faithful with the way that you spend your money, the way that you deal with your money, it's worth asking what does that path towards 10% look like? Now, practically speaking, if you're a city church member, if you're an official part of our church family, we ask that you start with giving 10% towards our church family here in Knoxville. <clears throat> Hopefully, that is not the only way that you're being generous, but as a member of City Church, we do ask that you start there. We see the local church as being on the front lines of meeting needs within our church family and out in our city and our world. So we ask that if you're going to start somewhere with generosity, you start there. We try to make it super easy to do. We have it all set up via push pay. It's really easy to set up either one time or on a recurring basis. So we talk about that often around here, or you can give at the giving baskets on the way out. Whatever you need to do, we try to make it super easy. But we ask that if you're a part of our church family in official capacity, that you start there. If you're not a city church member, or if you are a city church member and you want to give over and above that 10%, I would say just pick somewhere. A local church, a local nonprofit, a person or a family that you know is in need on a regular basis. Maybe someone in your life group needs persistent, ongoing help from a financial perspective. Maybe it's some combination of all of those things. Just find something to give towards that doesn't directly benefit you personally. Somewhere that doesn't grow your own kingdom, but rather God's kingdom. One way or another, Give away at least 10% of your income or work your way towards that to something outside of yourself or your family. And remember, once again, with all of this, the goal is not just to check off a box and say, okay, God's happy with me now because I give more away. That's not what we're going for here. The goal is to use our habits, including the way that we spend money, in allowing the Holy Spirit to loosen our grip on money and possessions and materialism and to set our attention and our affections on the kingdom of Jesus. That's the goal. That's what we're going for with all of this, with everything we do and in particular what we're talking about today. By refusing to store up treasures for ourselves, we are teaching our hearts to instead, in the language of Jesus, store up treasure in heaven, to be rich toward God, to care most about the things of the kingdom of God rather than caring most about our own kingdom. Now, as we close, I just want to take you back to the very beginning of the parable that Jesus told us. It says that right after this guy's land and the story produced plentifully, he asked himself a question. Here's the question he asked himself. What shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? That's his question. Now, I know it's easy for us to knock on this guy in the passage, in the parable, but that right there is an excellent question to ask, right? He unexpectedly comes into way more than he needs, and his question is, what should I do with all of this? The problem for a lot of us is that we don't even stop long enough to ask that question. We have a good year, and we think, cool, more for me. We put it right in our bank account. Or we think, cool, new flat screen TV that I definitely don't need, but I definitely do want. That's what I'm buying with this extra money. Cool, exotic vacation, here we come. 
But here's where the guy went astray. Here's where he went wrong with his question. He asked the question to the wrong person. He asked himself what he should do with his extra rather than asking God what he should do with his extra. We're going to get into this much more next week, but who is it that gives us all of our money, including our extra? God. So wouldn't it follow that we should ask God what to do with our extra? That before just assuming he wants us to add that to our kingdom here on earth, shouldn't we first ask God, is there any need you have for this money? Is there anything you want me to do with this money since you gave it to me in the first place? If the extra you have comes from God himself, don't you think he should get to make the call on where that extra goes? If he gave it to you, don't you think he should get to tell you what he wants you to do with it? And when you do that, when you honestly ask that question and seek out the answer to that question, you'll often find that that he has much bigger and better purposes for your extra than bigger barns. That's how we learn what life is all about. And that's where we start learning to imitate the generosity of God himself. This whole series is about how generosity does not start with us. It starts with God. And what we celebrate this time of year is that God gave us the ultimate gift. God's relationship to us started with generosity towards us. And in light of that, he wants to make us into generous people in return, to reflect who he is to our world. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, I know um, stuff like this makes a lot of us uncomfortable. Money often feels like such a, a personal and private and standoffish issue. But God, uh, how we view our money and how we spend our money and what we do with our money is so vitally important to how we follow you. When you called us to follow you, you, you did not call us to leave the way we think about money behind. You wanted to transform how we think about every single facet of our life. And so, um, God, maybe for some of us in the room, this is the one thing that we're refusing to, um, to hear you out on. Maybe this is the one thing that we have just neglected to put into practice in regards to our discipleship. but you tell us in Matthew chapter six that you cannot serve both God and money. At the end of the day, we have to pick who we're gonna follow. And God, we know that materialism is everywhere in our world, especially this time of year, especially after everything's been going on in our world. God, the temptation is everywhere to spend more money on ourselves, to ask for more stuff on our Christmas list for ourselves, to store up treasures for ourselves on earth. And so God, I, I just wanna pray that you would help us in the coming month or so, just really lift our eyes above all of that. 
that you would help us to see more clearly than that. God, I want to pray that we would see you and your son, Jesus, as the ultimate gift and that we would realize and put into practice the freedom that Jesus came to bring in regards to our money and possessions. God, more stuff and nicer stuff will not make us new. You make us new. And so God, would you help us to seek you out, to listen to you, to ask you, what should we do with our extra? Who should we give it to? What should we invest it in? And God, I wanna pray that we would find joy along that journey. God, would you help us? Would you guide us? Would you bring us wisdom? God, would you make us more and more like your son, Jesus? We ask this in your name. Amen.